Welcome to Eric Hurst's Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Training for Climbing podcast, episode number 25. This is going to be round two of Ask Coach Hurst where I answer listener questions as they were submitted to me uh, through my Twitter feed or uh, a few came in via email as well. And I'm going to run through here uh, eight or ten questions over the next 45 minutes to an hour. And hopefully you'll be able to relate to some of them and learn from some of them. And uh, I find that climbers have a lot of the same issues and a lot of the same concerns and I get a lot of the same questions over and over and so I would hope that a few of these questions speak to you and will be uh, valuable to help you uh, take your training and your climbing performance forward and to the next level. So we're going to start off here with a couple of questions relating to hangboard training and uh, the first question comes from Nathan uh, in California. Uh, He says, I've been reading about your 753 hangboard protocol and I plan to implement it once the maximum hang protocol plateaus. Uh, What he's talking about here is I guess he's doing a current fingerboard program of maximum hangs. The way I've described it is you do a maximum 10-second weighted hangs, and then you rest three minutes. And uh, this is a protocol that Ava Lopez has shown to be quite effective. Uh, Certainly early on in the hangboard training, uh, most people will get pretty good results out of this, though uh, oftentimes you need to take a break or change things up to kind of confuse and confound the the nervous system and, and continue to get results. So in any case, he wants to progress to the 753 protocol that I promote and uh, have described extensively in my Training for Climbing book, and I feel is a very effective protocol and time-efficient protocol for continuing to train maximum finger strength. And specifically, Nathan wants to know about how much weight he should be using uh, relative to what he's using in his maximum weight protocol, which is a 10-second hang followed by a three-minute recovery period. And for those of you not familiar with the 753 protocol, uh, it involves three hangs each seven seconds with a 53-second rest in between. And that three-hang set is then followed by a three- to five-minute rest before you do another three-hang set. So Nathan, what you'll need to do is probably use a little less weight for the 753 protocol than what you do for your 10-second max weight hangs. And that's because with only a 53-second break between the three hangs, you'll have incomplete recovery. You'll get a lot of creatine phosphate, about 70% regenerated, but not complete recovery as you do with a three-minute break uh, between your 10-second hangs. So long story short, I recommend subtracting 5 or 10, maybe even 20 pounds from the weight you use for your 10-second max weight hangs for the 753 protocol. So as an example, let me tell you what I do. If I'm doing max weight hangs, and by the way, I weigh about 160 pounds, and for maximum weight hangs, a 10-second hang followed by three-minute rest, I add about 100 pounds. So that's what's hanging from the belay loop on my harness. However, when I'm doing the 753 protocol, my training weight is more like 70 to 80 pounds. 
for the three seven-second hangs. Uh, and so you can see there's a reduction in weight of 20, actually 30 pounds sometimes between what I use for max weight hangs and the 753 protocol. So ultimately, you're going to need to experiment a little bit and find out just what the right weight is. Uh, you should only approach failure on the third hang, the third seven-second hang. The other two, you should be ending with a few seconds of gas left in the tank, you might say. If you come to failure before seven seconds on your first or second hang, well, then you need to take more weight off for your next set of the 753s. And uh, I'm not sure where you're at in terms of your training history, but I recommend doing for the average climber two or three sets of hangs. An elite climber may do as many as uh, five or six sets working a variety of grip positions. I mostly focus and recommend people focus on the half crimp and the open crimp grip, but doing some uh, two-finger pocket hangs is also a real good idea for more advanced climbers. Now, on to the second question. This comes from the UK, and it's uh, kind of a related question about finger training, but in this case, uh, he doesn't have access to a hangboard and is wondering about a technique that he's seen on the internet. In fact, he sent me a photo here uh, depicting uh, one finger training, kind of a single finger uh, curl, I guess you would call it, where you have a loop of webbing over the distal joint of the finger um, hanging by your side, so you're standing up, hands by side, a loop of webbing with a free weight hanging from the webbing. It looks like about a five pound weight and that is looped through uh, or over the DIP joint, the distal joint of the finger, and then doing kind of a little finger curl with that weight. And I guess the question is, what are the pros and cons of this type of training? Um, and is it useful for a climber? And so uh, to answer that question, um, this type of low resistance isolation training is excellent for rehabilitation. Someone coming back from injury needs to be able to expose the tendons, whether it's a pulley or a flexor tendon, to some level of stress to help spur on and uh, optimize the collagen formation and the strengthening of uh, the injured tendon. Uh, and of course, doing body weight training uh, on an injured finger or a tendon is not a good thing. That would be too much stress early on in the rehabilitation process. So yes, suspending a two and a half or a five pound weight from uh, an injured finger that you're trying to recover and doing some type of uh, low intensity uh, finger flexion would be a good thing. Now, what is the utility of this training technique for an uninjured climber? Well, I would argue that it probably doesn't provide enough resistance uh, not enough uh, intensity, and it's also not so specific to actual climbing. Uh, you don't climb with your hands by your side and your fingers flexing up and down. And so these types of finger curl exercises, while I, I don't want to say they're bad, um, they have limited use in taking your uh, climbing specific strength and endurance to the next level. And I've dabbled with uh, finger curls and finger rolls in the past. Uh, this is actually a pretty big thing back in the late 1980s and early 1990s was to do heavy finger rolls with 
very heavy barbells, using all of your fingers, of course, not single fingers. But in any case, that type of training uh, did seem to feed back and give some useful strength gains, but not as specific and I don't think as in a dramatic way as what a good hangboard training program or campus board training program uh, will do. So again, um, if you don't have access to a hangboard, well then I would say any finger exercise would be a good thing, uh, even if it's squeezing a rubber donut, which again is basically worthless for developing high-end finger strength, but at least it is um, getting the blood flowing through the forearm muscles, through the finger flexor muscles, uh, and it is uh, subjecting the tendons and tendon pulleys of the fingers to some degree of stress, which is important to keep them uh, strong and getting stronger as well. You know, that's something that climbers need to keep in mind, is when you're finger training or when you're climbing, you're not only stressing uh, the muscles, but also the tendons. And just as the muscles break down and weaken a bit from exercise and from climbing, so do the tendons. And so this process of stimulus and response, train, recover, it's something that's ongoing not only in the muscles, but in the tendons as well. And so I guess a final comment here before I move on is that just as you can overtrain a muscle, you can overtrain a tendon or overstress a tendon. And if you don't give the tendons enough time to recover, that can eventually lead you down the path to getting some type of a finger injury. And so when people get a uh, common, let's say, A2 pulley injury in their finger, oftentimes it's kind of the move you were on when it happened was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's not so much that that move itself was uniquely injurious or dangerous, but that preceding that in the prior days and weeks and perhaps months, the tenants uh, have been getting a little weaker and not had enough time to play catch up and recover. Maybe you've just been climbing and training too hard. And so that day that you got the pulley injury was the day that kind of the straw broke the camel's back. And so that's something to think about uh, in terms of uh, training um, and recovery and programming. And of course, diet and nutrition play a, a big role in uh, muscle and tendon recovery. That's something that I'm going to dedicate a podcast to this fall. But I'll leave it at that and uh, we'll revisit this in the future. Okay, so on to the third question. This is from Jeremy in Sydney, Australia. Been climbing 10 years, uh, age 45, currently climbs around 7B or 512B, or in Australian grades, 24 or 25. Uh, in any case, Jeremy says that he has plenty of opportunity to climb outside uh, and also climb indoors using an auto belay a couple days a week. Uh, but he's wondering, with all of that climbing, both indoors and outside, where does he fit in supplemental training? Uh, he says it doesn't seem like he could do a periodized program with all this outdoor climbing. And Jeremy, I would agree. Uh, you can't really get on a formal periodized program that has dedicated training blocks if you're climbing so extensively. It sounds like maybe you're climbing a couple days a week outside and then doing uh, indoor wall climbing with the auto belay a couple days a week as well. So that's four days. 
I am a firm believer that if you're climbing four days a week, you need three days of recovery where you're not stressing the fingers, kind of like what I said in the previous question. If you're subjecting your climbing muscles and tendons to high levels of stress six or seven days a week, the long-term outcome is not going to be good. Uh, You will likely run into some problems in terms of injury uh, or overtraining on down the road. So if you're climbing four days a week, any supplemental training that is specific to climbing should be done on one or more of those four climbing days. And so it sounds like the two days that you're climbing indoors with the auto belay would be the ideal time to do a little bit of extra training. And a fingerboard would be a great tool. If you're climbing in that 7B, 512B range, uh, you're uh, a solid intermediate or actually an advanced intermediate climber in my book. And that is where fingerboard training can be very useful uh, and very beneficial uh, to do a few sets at the end of your two indoor climbing sessions would be a good thing. Um, I wouldn't go on a heavy duty fingerboard or campus board training program. That's probably premature. But to do a few sets of fingerboard hangs over the course of 20 minutes, Toward the end of your two indoor climbing sessions each week, I think would uh, feedback and give some beneficial results that would help advance your climbing. And I should add, I would also recommend doing a few sets of weighted pull-ups, maybe three to five sets of weighted pull-ups for developing uh, strength in the larger pulling muscles. Uh, You could do some Frenchies, which is more of a strength endurance exercise as well. Uh, And then, of course, core training. I think all climbers should be doing a couple days of core exercises, uh, and you need to mix it up. Uh, In every session, at least three different core exercises that work different aspects of the core, both posterior and anterior. And so uh, you could reference my book, Training for Climbing, where there's a slew of core exercises that you could pick from. And a final comment, as especially as an older climber, you're in your mid-40s, I would recommend doing some rotator cuff training as well. Two days per week, those indoor climbing days are the perfect time to do it. You could do these at the very end of your session. All you need is a few light dumbbells, uh, 10 or 15 pound dumbbells to do some internal and external rotation And that pretty much rounds out what would be a good supplemental program to do twice per week, 20 to 30 minutes of exercises in addition to your time spent climbing. Now, as you push up the grade scale into 512 plus and entering into the 513 range, then you need to take your training to a higher level. But that's a subject for another discussion. You can drop me a note when you get there. Until then, have fun. Okay, on to the next question. This comes from Jake in Oregon. And he says that his girlfriend has been climbing about one year, though she recently broke her right wrist uh, or hand and uh, has some neuropathy issues, has had uh, a tough time regaining strength and mobility so that she can trust that hand in belaying, let alone climbing. But I guess Jake's concern is belaying the right hand being so critical to to be on the rope at all times. Um, What do, uh, he wants to know what I would suggest in terms of uh, belaying. Should she try to belay left-handed? And also what could she do to strengthen that problematic hand and wrist? And 
So first thing, uh, I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't want to really give out medical advice, but um, a couple of things here, and it sounds like she's been to a doctor and is on her way to a slow recovery. And so I would say that if she's in the latter stages of recovery, actually doing some blaying would be a good therapeutic, you know, good method to kind of actively work the wrist to force her to uh, move it throughout different ranges of motion and put it in novel positions. Though perhaps a traditional belay plate or ATC is not the way to go, but instead using something like a Grigri, which is more of an auto-lock device that, although you want to have your right hand on the rope at all times, of course, it would presumably be able to catch a fall if she did take her hand or lose her grip on the rope. So I would uh, move back into her belaying using one of these semi-auto lock devices like a Grigri. And in terms of rehabilitation, well, certainly whatever the doctors prescribed, she should stay with that. Um, I would add that uh, an excellent tool made by TheraBand is called a Flex Bar. If you go to Google or Amazon.com and type in TheraBand Flex Bar, uh, it's this nice little rubber bar that you can use at home or at work or take with you on a climbing trip. And there's a variety of novel exercises you can do with the TheraBar that will work the wrist extensors and flexors and put your wrist in all these different positions to improve range of motion. You buy the flex bar and then watch a few videos that will show you a few key exercises that um, she can employ and I think will help speed her recovery back to climbing and back to being a uh, world-class belayer as well. So good luck with that. Okay, moving ahead, uh, I have a long question from Ken in California. He's kind of a climber in uh, the midlife years, kind of like myself. I guess uh, sounds like he might be in his 50s. And um, I guess I'll just kind of summarize his question here. He's been climbing six years, about 5.11a is his best grade. And uh, he aspires to climb harder. Um, he's in good conditioning, has a history of aerobic activity and weight training, and is just kind of trying to sort out what he can do to take his climbing to the next level and uh, deal with recovery issues, you know, how to, uh, I guess, not get so sore and fatigued the day after he climbs or does a workout. And so I guess it sounds like Ken is just looking for some advice on maybe what the best uh, training philosophy is for him at this stage of the game. And so, Ken, um, I can relate. Uh, I'm happy to hear from any climber who's in their 50s and still out there trying to do exciting stuff uh, and recreate in the vertical world and uh, benefit from uh, all that it has to offer us. Um, in terms of training, you know, it sounds like you have an extensive background in training, and uh, I don't think you want to continue with what you've done in the past. It sounds like you have a lot of history in weightlifting and aerobic activity, and although those are good for general conditioning and keeping you in shape into middle age, into your 50s and beyond, it's not specific enough to really advance your climbing. And so if you're fit um, and relatively healthy and not currently injured, well then, first of all, climbing two or three days per week combined indoors and outdoors is the place to start. And doing some supplemental strength training. 
I'm a big fan of fingerboard training. It's been very useful for myself to uh, keep my grip strength strong and actually still getting a bit stronger even in my 50s. Uh, I wouldn't overdo it. I would do uh, maybe 20-minute hangboard sessions two days per week, always followed up by at least a full day of rest, perhaps even two full days of rest. Because as you mentioned in your email to me, recovery is an issue. Uh, Being in your 40s and 50s, your recovery does slow down. In fact, some professional athletes find even in their early 30s, they aren't recovering the way they did in their teens and 20s. So it is a slow slide uh, in terms of uh, an increasing need for more recovery and less training stimulus as you go from being in your 30s to your 40s to your 50s to your 60s. The training stimulus is still important and it still needs to be very targeted and quite intense, but not as voluminous and with longer periods of rest between workouts. Uh, With myself, two hard workouts a week is about all I can uh, manage if I'm still trying to climb outside one or two days on the weekend. And so programming becomes a real important issue as it is for all advanced climbers, but especially for climbers uh, of advancing age, uh, getting it just right is important. And so I would err on the side of undertraining, um, keeping the workouts targeted and intense, but not ultra lengthy. You know, climbers tend to be gluttons for punishment and always are thinking in, to themselves, one more set, one more set, that'll be the difference maker. And unfortunately, it's often the difference maker in the wrong direction in terms of um, slowing your recovery, perhaps uh, tempting injury. And for an older climber, that extra set or two is probably not a difference maker in getting stronger, but it can be a difference maker in lengthening the amount of time you have to take off or the amount of time it takes to recover to get back to 100% for your next workout or for your day of performance climbing out doors. Now, uh, sleep and nutrition, hugely important in my opinion for all climbers, but especially for climbers that are getting into their 30s and 40s and 50s. You know, as a 20-something, it seems you can get away with just about anything. You know, a night of drinking and still climb hard the next day, or a sleepless night and still climb hard the next day. Uh, As you get into middle age, those things seems you have less tolerance for, I guess you would say. And uh, I find getting eight hours of sleep after a hard day of climbing or a hard workout is very important, though difficult to schedule uh, given a busy life. And so uh, that's something where I try to look at my schedule on a daily basis and, you know, what can I eliminate? What can I do less of in terms of kind of unimportant time-filling activities that I can delete out of my day, like less time watching TV or less time on social media or, or whatever, so that I can get more sleep at night. I think that's a step in the right direction to be able to plan out a good night's sleep following a hard workout or a hard day of climbing. And then in terms of nutrition, well, it plays a huge role as well in the recovery process. Uh, Getting enough protein in your diet. I'm a big fan of whey protein, consuming it after a workout, consuming it right before 
uh, bed at night uh, when you know the majority of the muscle protein synthesis is taking place. You want to have those amino acids hitting your bloodstream. Um, first thing in the morning, I have uh, a cup of uh, watered-down juice with a spoonful of citrulline malate, which is a supplement that uh, will give you a natural vasodilation effect, which uh, is very helpful for an older climber. As you tend to lose circulation, it becomes more and more important to be able to vasodilate. Um, I also use a sauna a couple days a week for the same effect, to kind of encourage circulation, getting blood flowing through the microvascular system, um, and also for the positive effects it has on mitochondria content, which is also something that gets lost uh, as you age. You know, it's been well shown in research that uh, VO2 max, your ability to consume and utilize oxygen to power exercise, decreases with age, about 1% per year uh, of decrease in VO2. And uh, a portion of that is due to loss of mitochondria content. And so anything you can do to uh, strengthen your cardiovascular system, like doing aerobic activity a few days per week, and anything you can do to improve mitochondria function and sustain or uh, maintain your VO2 max is beneficial. And a sauna is a, is a, is a useful uh, modality for recovery and for potentially multiple benefits in terms of uh, exercise physiology, recovery, and longevity. And uh, a few more things on the supplement front. Um, fish oil is beneficial for a number of reasons. Um, and vitamin D, that's a big one. I think pretty much everyone should be supplementing vitamin D3 because even folks that are in the sun a lot can be vitamin D deficient. And for those of us who work and spend a lot of our days indoors or in a cloudy climate, vitamin D is essential. Uh, and as you get into middle age, uh, a very important factor in maintaining testosterone levels. Uh, and so if uh, you've ever had your testosterone tested and you're in a low end range of normal, uh, vitamin D could be a fix, something to try out there. And I guess my final comment, coming from a fellow middle-aged climber, is to spend more time getting out actually climbing than you do training indoors. You know, training can be fun and is certainly engaging, and I enjoy it, but it's all about getting outside. That's kind of the bottom line. And so never pass up an opportunity. If there's good weather and a good rock to climb, get outside and do it. Okay, on we go to question number six. This comes from William. He says, Eric, I really enjoy and appreciate your work. It's been very helpful. However, I'm currently dealing with persistent tendinosis. Uh, he says medial epicondylitis. That's the inside. Uh, so tendinitis near that bony epicondyl on the inside of the elbow. He asks, do you have any healthcare providers that you could refer me to to help me better understand this injury and how to treat this now chronic injury that, I'll tell you folks, is a pesky injury. Elbow tendonitis is one that, once it really sets in, does become chronic, and as William correctly calls it, becomes tendinosis, which is really uh, tendonitis that fails to heal, and uh, basically the tendon becomes scarred, and it becomes a long-term matter that is really hard to resolve. 
And so again, in answering this question, I want to start off by saying that I'm not a medical doctor. However, a good friend of mine is, uh, Volker Schoffel. He is a German uh, climber and physician and one of the world's leading experts on climbing injuries, whether it's the hands, elbows, shoulders, you name it. Volker is the man. And he's written a terrific book. It's called One Move Too Many. It's available both in Europe and here in the United States, uh, and uh, you can order a copy off my website, trainingforclimbing.com. And uh, One Move Too Many does address the injury that you have, medial epicondylitis, and will give you a sense of um, what you can do in terms of rehabilitation and uh, how you might go about trying to uh, put an end to this all. Uh, one thing that's not mentioned in the book, but that I have a little personal knowledge of, is a new procedure called Tenex. T-E-N-E-X. Um, and it's actually a minor surgical procedure done in a doctor's office. Uh, so it doesn't require general an anesthetics uh, and such. Uh, and uh, the Tenex procedure, though I guess it's still a bit controversial, has been proven to help resolve some long-term tendon issues. Uh, I had the Tenex procedure done to my hamstring. Uh, I had high hamstring tendinopathy last year and had the 10x procedure followed by um, a period of self-directed rehabilitation. And uh, that tendonitis has largely resolved itself. And what the 10x procedure does is it they, they actually go in and cut out a very small amount of the diseased tendon, the, the, the portion of the tendon that is just not going to recover. And by removing that and essentially imparting a little bit of mechanical stress to the injured tendon, it spurs on a recovery process that's kind of ceased or halted in the current state of your tendon. That, that tendinosis, that failed healing, the body's basically given up. And so this 10x procedure is a way to kind of restart the healing process by removing just a little bit of the diseased tendon. And this is through a tiny hole done in a doctor's office. The whole procedure takes about 15 minutes and it appears to restart the healing process. And so I would suggest you do some internet research on 10x and then see if there's a local provider somewhere nearby that can do the procedure. Uh, it's not super expensive, but it's not cheap. You'll be looking at probably between $500 and $1,000, depending whether your insurance company will pick up some of it or not. Uh, but I think it's worth a shot. If this is a long-running injury, William, it may not go away on its own at this stage of the game. And so you may need to be proactive. Um, so pick up Folker's book, One Move Too Many, read what he has to say about medial epicondylitis, but then also do some research on the 10x and see if that's something that you can look into and have perhaps have performed to help get you started on a path to recovery. The next question comes from Drew, and he says, thank you, Eric, for all the work you've done making climbing research available to the rest of us. And I think it's admirable, uh, the effort that you put into helping others progress with their training and their climbing. So 
that's kind, Drew. I really appreciate it. Now on to the question. He says that uh, he's having issues with his anaerobic capacity or his anaerobic endurance. It seems to fall off around 40 seconds of hard, sustained climbing. Uh, and he's wondering what I recommend in terms of training. Should he be doing more all-out 30-second reps or longer training sets? What is the answer, Eric? And uh, Drew, um, first of all, I direct you back to my recent podcast. I did a two-part podcast looking at anaerobic capacity training. And, uh, you know, that is primarily that being training that targets the anaerobic lactic energy system. And although all three energy systems contribute to that sustained hard climbing, that 45 second time frame that you mentioned, it is the anaerobic lactic system, which is producing the bulk of the ATP, at least for that short window. And so in terms of training interventions, what do I suggest? Well, um, a couple of things. If you're talking about a short term approach, like what can you do to improve your anaerobic capacity in the next week or two? Well, doing two rigorous interval training sessions per week where you're climbing for between 45 and 60 seconds. So you want to be pushing that anaerobic capacity, uh, really trying to max it out twice per week. And since you tend to fall off a cliff in terms of power production at around 40 seconds, I would make the training goal sets that last 45 to 60 seconds to kind of stretch that limit. And so whatever the exercise is, whether it's on a climbing wall or whether it's a pulling oriented exercise or even, you know, doing ladder laps on a campus board, push for 45 to 60 seconds of pretty much an all out effort. You should be getting pumped and by the end uh, out of breath at 60 seconds and then take a five minute rest and do at least four sets and perhaps as much as eight sets. I don't know where you're at in your training history and in your conditioning and your climbing ability, but if you're towards the advanced end of the spectrum, then you can probably do up to eight sets in a workout. Of course, doing a comprehensive warm-up before and then kind of um, perhaps some supplemental exercises at the end of your session. I would only do this twice per week. Uh, it's a very stressful workout. This type of training is what is most likely to uh, take a climber down the path of overtraining. So people that do this type of thing three or four days per week end up quickly getting negative results and, and going nowhere. And so just twice per week is what I would recommend for you. That's assuming one day of hard climbing outdoors. If you're climbing two or three days per week outdoors, well, then you might only be able to do one of these stressful uh, anaerobic lactic system workouts during the week. And and perhaps if you're really climbing for, for performance on a given week or two or three, you might not really want to do any intensive training during the week to be sure that you're completely recovered. Now, the second part of my answer uh, relates to long-term, what can you do to build out your anaerobic capacity? And the answer is very different because as I explained in my uh, recent podcast, number 23 and 24, these anaerobic lactic adaptations, the specific ones that you're after in uh, 
doing those workouts, things like intracellular buffering and blood buffering and uh, increasing the lactate transporters and anaerobic enzymes, those adaptations play out pretty quickly and get really topped off in just a few weeks of training. So long-term, year-round training of the anaerobic lactic system isn't going to take you anywhere, uh, at least not very quickly. And so the long-term approach is really a more polarized approach to your training, especially during the off-season with the goal of taking your maximum strength to the next level because that establishes the upper limit in terms of your anaerobic system. And to build out anaerobic capacity below that, well, you can have a, a greater capacity, a greater power endurance by increasing, pushing the ceiling up on your maximum strength. And then the other side of the polarized program is strengthening the aerobic energy system uh, locally in your forms, in your climbing muscles, improving capillary density, uh, increasing mitochondria density and respiration, the ability for oxygen to diffuse into the cells and metabolic byproducts to diffuse out of the cells into the bloodstream. Those types of aerobic system adaptations are very important for supporting the anaerobic system and also driving recovery between climbing sets and while you're on a route. And so long-term, you need to be really training the complete picture, building your maximum strength, increasing your aerobic power, and then, of course, doing that targeted anaerobic lactic system training in the short term as kind of the last thing you do before a period of performance climbing. And again, those details are things that I've really tried to map out in my series of podcasts on energy system training. I'll be wrapping that up here in the next couple of months with a podcast on the aerobic system and then kind of a, um, a final concluding podcast on tips and tricks when it comes to uh, energy system training. So uh, I think when it's all said and done, it's going to be a series of about five podcasts that uh, are really worth listening to several times to help guide you um, on the path to being more effective in training short-term, but also long-term, month and year over year, to take your climbing to the next level. So good luck with that, Drew, and hope this uh, helps you out. So on we go to Sarah in North Carolina. She writes that she'd like to get some nutritional advice. What are the best things to eat before and after a workout and during a weekend road trip uh, when you're heading out to climb at the crags? And uh, specifically, she asks, how much protein does the average climber need? Well, uh, this is a topic that can't really be addressed in a short three to five minute answer, as I'm going to try to do here. Um, I could do a whole podcast. I could do a whole book on climbing nutrition because it's a really rich subject that uh, plays a role in the adaptations you get from training, uh, how fast you recover from workouts, uh, how long lasting your energy will be uh, on uh, during a workout or a day of climbing, uh, and even uh, health benefits um, and longevity. You know, the best nutrition for an athlete isn't necessarily the ideal nutrition for health or for longevity. Uh, And I know that kind of is going to leave you hanging, uh, but 
perhaps I'll try to address those interesting subjects in a future podcast. But first of all, in terms of before a workout, uh, you really want to train with an empty stomach. If you eat a large meal or a significant amount of food within a few hours of a workout, this will divert blood flow to your stomach And it's just not an ideal situation for working out where you want to have the blood flowing to your muscles. And uh, also, there's an insulin response to the food you eat that may leave you at a lower energy level heading into your workout than what would be ideal. So really, uh, I think you don't want to eat within the last couple of hours before you head to the gym. Uh, If you're coming, say, from work or from school and you need just a little snack or a pick-me-up, well, then a cup of coffee and an energy bar, I think, is enough and won't really uh, interfere with your workout and will probably help your workout a little bit to get a little bit of caffeine into the system and to get a slow trickle of some carbohydrate into the bloodstream as well. But a big meal, not a good idea before the workout. After the workout, a different story. Um, If you're training hard, you need a, a good source of protein. And if you're training long, you need a good source of carbohydrate to uh, resynthesize glycogen in the muscles and in the liver. And so uh, a complete meal with protein, uh, with a protein source, some vegetables, uh, some uh, source of carbohydrate is really important within about two hours following your workout. I will often, if I'm uh, traveling or uh, leaving a gym or leaving a crag, uh, eat a protein energy bar or stop and buy a pint of low-fat chocolate milk, which is actually a great recovery drink to bridge me over from the end of the workout to when I actually get home or get to a restaurant to have a meal just to get that recovery process started. And of course, consuming water uh, throughout the day and throughout your workout is important. You don't need to chug a lot of water. Uh, Again, you don't want that sloshing around in your belly. And if you're just training for a couple of hours, you're not likely to get dehydrated as you would, say, if you're out at the crags all day where consuming a couple of liters of water is important. And as far as crag nutrition goes, again, you don't need to pack out a huge meal to the crags. Uh, You don't want to be pushing a lot of food into your stomach throughout the day. I already told you why. So think in terms of snacks if you're headed out to the crags for a half day or even a full day. Uh, Things like um, quality energy bars, uh, fruit like bananas are excellent crag food. Um, Bagels are good. Uh, what, What we do in our family is make bagel sandwiches in the morning. We'll put a tablespoon of peanut butter inside a sliced bagel and then put some jelly or jam in there and have basically a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that's really high quality crag food, in my opinion, that you can maybe eat half uh, late morning and the other half mid-afternoon. That along with some water and maybe a piece or two of fruit is probably enough calories and enough nutrition to get you throughout the day. Of course, at the end of your day at the crag, that high quality meal with protein and uh, vegetables and carbohydrates, that is essential. And uh, final comment, um, a protein shake before bed. I'm a big fan of that. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. Uh, A scoop of whey protein powder in a glass of skim milk or even in a glass of water before bed to give you a dose of 20 or 25 grams of uh, high quality protein is crucial 
before your overnight fast, before your six to eight hours of fasting while you're sleeping. There's a lot of research showing that that is important to support muscle protein synthesis uh, during the overnight and to uh, accelerate recovery into your next day of climbing or into your next workout. Uh, If you're not getting enough protein in your diet and if you're not getting enough carbohydrate in your diet, you are not going to recover optimally and not adapt optimally to your workouts. Oh, and you specifically asked about uh, how much protein is required. Uh, I believe the minimum is one gram per kilogram of body weight. So if you weigh, say, as I do, 72 kilograms, well, then 72 grams of protein is the bare minimum per day. If you're training hard, I think 1.5 grams per kilogram of body weight is ideal. So in my case, uh, I shoot for a little over 100 grams of protein per day. So that's where I'm going to leave it for now. There's a lot more in this subject. We could talk about uh, supplements uh, and uh, various fad diets, the pros and cons of them, but I will leave that for a future podcast. On we go here to Spain. This question comes from Adriana. She says she has a 12-year-old daughter who's been climbing two years. She absolutely loves to boulder. And it sounds like she's quite talented in that she's fifth ranked in Spain in the age uh, 16 and under uh, bouldering group. And the question from Adriana relates to training. She uh, mentions that there's a lot of confusion or mixed messages, I guess, from trainers in her country. And so she wants my uh, advice on how to train a youth climber, specifically a 12-year-old girl. Well, Adriana, I have a lot of experience on this because I have two teenage boys that uh, one has uh, concluded his growth spurt. He's 17 years old now, but my younger son, Jonathan, is uh, 15 years old and he's in the midst of his growth spurt, which is uh, a critical time in the development of of an adolescent and uh, for an athlete, a time where uh, growth plate injuries are of great concern. Uh, You see them in other sports, in soccer, uh, Savers Heel, Osgood Schlatter's in the knee among runners, and in climbers, it's the growth plates in the fingers that are of concern, that are uh, commonly getting injured among hard climbing, hard training youth climbers. And so uh, the research that's being done, and there's a growing body, uh, my friend Volker Schoffel, who's a doctor in Germany, and his colleagues have gathered a lot of data on uh, youth climbers and injuries, uh, especially uh, among hard climbing sport climbers and uh, kids that are on the competition circuit in Europe. And the incidence of injury corresponds very closely with the period of highest growth velocity uh, when you know that those growth spurt years which for a, a young girl uh, is between the ages of uh, say 10 and 13 for a boy it's a little later uh, ages 12 to 16 where that spurt usually occurs and uh, during that time kids can grow a lot in a single year you know three four inches or maybe up to 10 centimeters in one year. And it's during that growth spurt where those uh, growth plates, specifically in the long finger, that's where uh, the middle joint 
of the long finger that tends to become symptomatic and develop pain. And in some cases, actually the growth plate, uh, there'll be a fracture in the bone, which can then lead to uneven growth and disfigurement if it's not treated. Uh, and if the uh, athlete, the young climber is not withdrawn from climbing for a period of time. And so my first piece of advice for you is to uh, track your daughter's growth, uh, take measurements every few months, and you'll see that growth spurt. You're probably seeing it in person that your daughter is getting taller quickly. Being age 12, she's probably in the midst of the growth spurt, and that means she should not be doing uh, anything um, excessively stressful. No hangboard training. Uh, any campus board training should be very limited, probably just some laddering on large handholds. Uh, no double hand, double dyno campus training. That would be totally inappropriate for a youth climber uh, in the growth spurt years. Um, as she stops growing, age 13, age 14 is typically when the growth plates will fuse. And at that point, she can then move into more of an adult type training program. But you're going to have to watch your daughter for another year or two to be sure that she doesn't do anything too stressful and develop uh, as a bouldering specialist. It concerns me that uh, if she's doing it several days a week and pushing herself, that she is potentially at risk for some growth plate issues. So any sign of pain in that long finger, middle joint, um, should be heated and uh, climbing should be reduced or eliminated for a period of time. Uh, of course, I'm a big fan of kids getting exposure to outdoor climbing and roped climbing because this will broaden out the technical skills, uh, self-awareness and uh, climbing efficiency, things that as a boulderer don't get so dialed in because it's a more complex task, you know, getting outside and getting onto the sharp end of a rope. And so that would be something I would encourage you to, to expose your daughter to, and that'll help her in the years to come to become a more successful climber, both bouldering uh, and in the larger world of sport climbing, which there's a heck of a lot of in Spain, a lot of great sport climbing in Spain. So you're in a great spot for your daughter if she stays in the sport and stays passionate about the sport to really grow and continue to improve a lot in the years to come. Okay, let's take one more question here. Uh, this one comes from Scott in Oregon. He asks how he can best organize his training uh, on a fingerboard and bouldering wall, given the fact that they're in different locations. I, I, I guess it sounds like uh, Scott has access to a bouldering wall at a gym, but that the hangboard is actually at home. And so how would he kind of integrate uh, training on both and be most effective? And so um, what I would suggest, Scott, and I don't know how this fits with your life schedule, your work schedule, and the distance between your home and the climbing gym or the distance between the hangboard location and the bouldering wall location. But you want to do them on the same day. And what I would re recommend as being kind of the ideal solution for you is this. Um, begin with kind of a warm-up period on the hangboard. So if you can uh, be at home for 20 or 30 minutes and uh, slowly progress through some easy uh, hangs on the fingerboard on good holds, doing some pull-ups on good holds, uh, maybe doing some scapular pull-ups on uh, the juggy holds on the fingerboard, and kind of crescendoing uh, towards the end of that 30-minute warm-up period to some higher-intensity hangs that really get your 
forearm muscles, your finger flexors turned on. And then travel to the bouldering gym and put in your session, whether it's an hour or an hour and a half, you will already be well warmed up from your kind of 30 minutes at home on the hangboard. And so you can hit the bouldering wall, be very efficient and, and productive and, and work some hard projects or do some four by four uh, intervals on the bouldering wall uh, over the course of an hour or so. And then travel back home and finish things off uh, with a few sets of weighted fingerboard hangs. Uh, and you could do the maximum weight protocol that I talked about in the first question of this podcast, I believe, uh, where you're doing 10 second, pretty much maximal weighted hangs followed by three minutes of rest. And doing just a few of those is highly effective, uh, at least in the short term, at uh, opening up a new level of grip strength. Though I do think uh, as a more long-term protocol, I do favor the 753 program that I've designed and promoted in my Training for Climbing book, where you do a few sets of those uh, seven-second hangs followed by 53-second recovery periods, uh, training a few different grip positions. Uh, And we're talking about 15 to maybe at most 30 minutes of training here. Uh, When you get back home after your bouldering, you could throw in a few weighted pull-ups, Uh, You could throw in some core exercises during your recovery periods from the hangboard training and really kind of round out uh, a pretty good workout that started off warming up on the hangboard, then the middle section was the actual climbing on the bouldering wall, and then the conclusion being kind of that um, more stressful, though brief, uh, hangboard training, uh, core training, um, rotator cuff training, whatever supplemental training you want to kind of do at the end of the session when you get home that would be a good time to do it. And if you do that two to three days per week, it'll put you on a path to becoming a stronger climber. Okay, so there you have it. That's what, 10 questions answered in 53 minutes. Not bad for this typically long-winded coach, Hurst. Um, Closing thought, if you'd like to learn more about the wide-ranging topics covered in this podcast from nutrition to fingerboard training to exercise program design and recovering from injury, check out the third edition of Training for Climbing. That's my book. Uh, It's encyclopedic, I guess you would say. There are full chapters covering mental training, technique training, the physiology of climbing, training mobility, stability, antagonist muscles, core training, aerobic training, finger training for strength, power, and endurance, how to design a comprehensive training program, performance nutrition, how to accelerate recovery. There's even a chapter on self-assessment and goal setting that I believe you'll find revealing in terms of what you need to do to take your climbing to the next level, to enjoy climbing, be less fearful, and be more successful on the rock. Uh, I, I, you know, the feedback on this book has been tremendous. Uh, it's now on its third edition. It's undoubtedly the best-selling training book in the world, with over 160,000 copies sold worldwide. And so, I really think you'll find value in this book, and it's something uh, that I think you can learn a lot from today and in the months and years to come. You can learn more about the book on my website, trainingforclimbing.com. 
and you can even order a signed copy. And of course, you could also buy a copy from Amazon.com, but it's uh, nicer to support the author by uh, buying from his website. So there's my little advertisement for this podcast. So I guess it's time to call it a wrap. For trainingforclimbing.com, I'm Eric Hurst. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and climb on.